Uh, look at John 14, <clears throat> if you would. Uh, a fam very familiar passage to us. We're going to examine today, uh, do our best to look at verses 1 through 13 <clears throat> of John 14. And a uh, very familiar passage to us. You'll hear this often preached about at moments of when a Christian needs comfort. Uh, you'll hear this passage read from many times at funerals. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's a passage, if you were here uh, for Dr. Sumter, for Pop's funeral, it's a passage I spoke from for that funeral because it's a passage I heard him speak from many, many times uh, at different funerals. And we talked about the fact that Jesus here is comforting his disciples. And so we take it as a comfort as well. And as familiar as this passage is to us, uh, we want to dig a little deeper. There's some things that we must know and that we should contemplate as we enter this text. We don't want to just jump right into chapter 14 and, and blaze through it. We want to know a little bit of the background. Now, the good thing is we've been studying chapters 12 and 13 over the last uh, services in the morning services, so we know some of the background, but let's summarize the context a little bit for us as we look at chapter 14. This is happening on Thursday night before Jesus is crucified. From everything that we can see biblically, Jesus is crucified on a Friday. This is the day before that crucifixion. And so it's that Thursday evening. So you can kind of imagine the context of the one speaking this. It is Jesus, the Son of God, the one come as Savior to the world, <coughs> and that Jesus knows what is about to happen. In fact, He's already sent Judas away to start uh, the betrayal process. And Jesus knows what is coming. He knows the gravity of what is coming. He knows uh, the pain that is about to happen to him physically. He knows uh, the shame and disgrace that he's going to bear in himself for the sins of every man in this world that has ever lived. He knows what is coming. And in knowing what is coming, he still seeks to comfort his disciples. He's not distracted by um, <coughs> the coming torment. He is not overwhelmed by it. He continues to teach. This is what we uh, have called or deemed the Last Supper, They're, that they are meeting around this table in this room, hidden away uh, from all of those that had followed Him or had watched His ministry. It's the final discourse, as some call it. And Jesus teaches, really, from chapter 13 through about uh, chapter 16 and 17, He teaches all through these passages is all one teach, one pretty much continuous teaching uh, discourse that he has with them. It's not broken up over several days. It's he just walks it through. So this obviously made an impact on John's life. For John, the book of John, 20 so chapters that he writes, he commits four of those chapters to the final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. So it made an impact in his life. It's important. If we were to go back to chapter 13 and review the last few sermons that we have done, we know that chapter 13 starts by Jesus coming in and washing His disciples' feet, by showing humility, by showing that even though He is God and even though He is Savior and even though He has all the power in the world, He kneels before these needy, selfish, sinful disciples and He washes their feet in humility. And then we see that he continues to try to teach even Judas to the last moments. Chapter 13 tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the very end, and that included Judas. We talked about a few weeks ago how he taught Judas up to the last 
moment, in a way, continuing to teach about himself, that he was the way to God. And then finally, Judas leaves. He is sent out. And Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. <clears throat> so you have humility and then the ultimate show of sinful pride in Judas. And then you have this command that we talked about to love. That Jesus says, this new commandment I've given to you, love each other as, you have lo- as I have loved you. You. If anyone's going to know that you're my disciple, they're going to know it by how you love each other. And then the passage, or chapter 13, finishes by Jesus telling Peter, you're going to deny me <coughs> three times. Now the disciples continued to miss over and over and over what Jesus was trying to teach them. He's trying to teach them humility. He's trying to teach them love. He's trying to assure them with the promises that he's going to return. He's going to set things right. So he's trying to teach and instill in them humility, love, assurance, and confidence in what he is doing and what his ministry is. But I want you to think about the audience that chapter 14 is given to. Excuse me, I'm (coughs) coughing today. That's why we didn't shake hands. I want you to think for a moment about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. It's still his apostles and his disciples, but think about what their hearts are feeling from the passages that we've looked at the last few weeks. They're ashamed because in their pride, they would not wash each other's feet. They had argued, they had fought over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And literally, as they are arguing, I'm going to be great. No, I'm going to be great. I'm going to sit closest to Jesus. I'm going to rule this place. Who's going to have Judea? Who's going to have Samaria? Who's going to rule all these things? And then they look and Jesus is kneeling at their feet, shirtless, with a towel wrapped around his waist, washing their feet. And they had to feel a sense of shame that they would not kneel to each other to serve and love each other, but Jesus would. So they're ashamed, convicted even, over their own sin, over their own pride. They would not serve Jesus. They were sad and they were discouraged because Jesus was telling them, I am going away. Now, if they had listened, they would know Jesus is trying to encourage them. He says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to return for you. (coughs) I'm going to go away. You can't come with me, but one day we'll see each other (coughs) again. They're sad and discouraged by the message that Jesus was trying to encourage them with, but they were so distracted by themselves. They were so selfish that they wouldn't serve, and they ended up ashamed, full of guilt. They couldn't see what Jesus was trying to teach. All they could think about was themselves. Well, if you're going somewhere else, what does that mean for us? We're not going to have a leader. No more miracles. What is, what is life going to be like? And they ended up sad and discouraged by that. They were perplexed because Jesus tells them in chapter 13, one of you is going to betray me. They're looking around. They have no idea who it is. Who? Why would any of us betray Jesus? Why would any of us turn against you? And then Jesus finishes the chapter looking right at Peter saying, not only will you not serve me, not only are you not willing to die for me, you're going to deny that you even know me. And so they're confused. They're ashamed of their sin. They have guilt for how they have responded. They're sad and they're discouraged. And they're confused because Jesus is now coming. They have just seen Jesus enter into Jerusalem, people kneel before his donkey as he rides in, throw down their coats and their palm leaves. And now Jesus says to them, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter, you're going to deny that you even know me. 
I'm going to go away from you and life is going to change. And they're, what? How is this happening? What is going on? You were just praised as king. We think you're about to set up your kingdom and you're telling us you're going to go away. One of us is going to turn against you. Peter's going to act like he doesn't even know you. And so they're confused as they enter into chapter 14. And in a very general sense of unrest and uneasiness, and in that confusion, they are very simply afraid. That's the audience that Jesus is speaking to. So when you look at chapter 14, look at verse number 1. When Jesus' first words are this, Let not your heart be troubled. That's why He's saying those words. Because He's looking at His disciples, realizing they're ashamed, they're full of guilt, they are confused and perplexed. They are sad and discouraged and they are afraid. And Jesus senses that in them and says, let not your heart be troubled. They were in a big moment of life. And this trouble is not something simple. It's the same word that talked about when Jesus was grieved in his spirit when Lazarus died. When he says that Jesus was troubled earlier at sin and at what was happening. So this is not simply something that they were just a little bothered by. They were anxious. They were discouraged. They were depressed, if you would say it that way. They were troubled. And Jesus' response to them was, don't let your heart be troubled. And this is a mirror of what we feel often in life, isn't it? You may not feel all of these things this morning, but I would almost guarantee you probably feel one of these things this week or last week, or in the weeks to come. We have days where we are ashamed, where when we know what we're to do to serve God, we know what sin we are to avoid and to shun, but we do it anyway. We know that we have guilt in our hearts when we want to serve God more and we choose not to. We know that we have a shame <coughs> in our heart when we are more focused on self than on the Lord. We have feelings of shame. We have feelings of sadness and discouragement. When we realize that we are so far away, it feels, from the perfection that Jesus promises in heaven. We are often perplexed and confused as to what exactly God is doing in this life and in our world. And often the shame, the guilt, the sadness, the discouragement, the perplexion, the confusion lead us to simply be afraid. And to be idle, to be still, to not serve, to not give ourselves to Christ. And it is in this context that we have chapter 14, and we begin in verse number 1. Let's read, starting in verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse 13. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. 
Jesus saith unto him, Have ye I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever he shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Lord, we ask you this morning to teach us from your word, to give us clarity of thought and mind, <coughs> to open our hearts <coughs> to what you have for us. May you give us the ability to seek you and to understand and to follow what Jesus is teaching this morning. Pray that you give me the strength to even clear my voice now um, and the ability to speak and to be understood. We ask that you would guide and direct even in the life of our Spanish ministry this morning as they have some coming for baptism, we pray that you would work on the lives of those maybe that are there for this moment, that they need to be saved, that the gospel work in their hearts and even amongst our midst, that the gospel would be prevalent, that it would be clear, and that it would be powerful in our lives. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. As we look at chapter 14... The big idea is pretty clear. Jesus is giving us the connection between himself and God the Father. He says to them, let not your heart be troubled. You're anxious, you're afraid, you're ashamed, <coughs> you're perplexed, confused. Don't be troubled. And then he goes even further and says, because I am one with the Father. Notice the different verses. If you have a pen and want to underline these parts of this particular verse, or even a highlighter with a different color to draw attention to it, look, if you would, in verse number 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So he says, where my Father is, he says, I'm going to go there. Jesus and the Father. Verse number 6. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Verse number 9, Have I I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen seen me hath seen the Father. So he connects himself again. Look at verse number 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Look at the end of the verse. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Verse number 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I shall do, uh, do, Shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Verse number 13. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Over and over in this verse, he connects himself to God the Father. And that is where this assurance, that is where this joy, that is where this comfort that he is trying to give is anchored in that he is not just a man here to tell them some things. He is not just a man that speaks and preaches well. He is not just a man that works uh, through miracles. He doesn't just teach parables. He is trying to tell them, I am not just here to point you to God. I am here to show you God because I am God. 
That's the comfort that he is giving them is that God is here with you. And in a moment, when I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus is not saying, I don't believe that heaven is in some sort of disarray or shambles and he's renovating it by any means. I don't believe that he is up there with a hammer and nails and his people are saved. He builds onto this place of heaven and adds physical boards and everything. He is saying, I'm going to prepare a way for you to come to my father as well. well. How is that? By his death on the cross, by going in and suffering for our sin in a way that we could not, by bearing that weight of death, yet raising himself to new life through the power of God the Father. And he's saying, you should be amazed because I am God. I am one with him. I am the Son of God. No son, N-O, then you have no father. But if you know the Son, as it says here in verse number 9, then you know the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God. Over and over, for time's sake, we won't go through each of these verses, but if you want to jot a few of them down and look at them later, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 1, 14, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 5, verses 19 and 26, Chapter 10, he says, if you, uh, my sheep know me, they have eternal life. Flip back, if you would, to to one of these. Chapter 11, look at verse number 25. (coughs) He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus, over and over and over, says, life is found in me. He is the revelation of God himself. And then we come to chapter 14 and verse number (coughs) 6. Where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. This verse, one one commentator says, is the core statement of the entire Gospel of John. It is the statement that the rest of the chapter point towards. You could argue that it is the statement that the entire book points towards. All of Jesus' wisdom, His healing, His salvation, His mercy, His grace, and His love, none of it matters if verse number 6 is not true. (coughs) You think of science and you think of uh, the theory of uh, general relativity and all these different things, and you think about the black hole that they teach you, and there's so much gravity there that it pulls everything else into it. Well, this verse in a positive way, is a black hole. There is so much weight to this verse that the whole rest of the book of John is sort of pulled into it and encapsulated in the fact that Jesus says, you don't get to the Father unless you come through me. Nothing else that I have taught, nothing else that I have done, no miracles that I have worked, no action that I have asked of you, nothing that I have called on you to do, none of that matters unless it comes first into this light, that I am God, that I am the Son of God the Father, that we are one, that He is in me and I am in Him, and you do not get access to God without me. Jesus teaches something here that is very clear, but in this tender moment of affection where He is comforting them, He gives them this truth. He doesn't say, it's all going to be okay. He doesn't say, Don't worry, it's going to get better. He says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life that you can find in God the Father. It is all 
in me. And it is given in answer to this question in verse number five, where Thomas says, Lord, <clears throat> we know not whither thou goest. And how do we know the way? We don't know where you're going. And how can we know? And Jesus says, this is how you know. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth. I am the only way that you can know God himself. And then in verse number eight, he asks another question, or he makes another statement. And Philip just says to him, in maybe a confused tone, Lord, just show us the Father and it suffices us. Just show us God. And Jesus is sitting there. He's teaching them. He washes their feet, teaches them of humility, teaches them of love. And then he says, I'm the only way that you have access to God. Now, think of in the Old Testament how often Jesus is so, or God is so clearly taught as separate from his people. Even though they are his people called out and chosen, they are nothing like him. They cannot attain to him. Even by the law, they cannot reach him. Think of all the things that are taught, the Ark of the Covenant, how separate they had to be from that. Don't even touch it. Think of the temple, and there's a, a place that certain people could go, and then <clears throat> others could go further, and then eventually it all came down to the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter there. You do not have access to God. That was really the whole theme of all the tabernacle and the temple. You don't, you don't deserve access to God. You cannot gain access to God. God is alone and in himself. I am God and there is no other. But now Jesus' message is, you can go in with me. You can get to the Father, but only by me. And he comforts them with this truth. And they say, well, just show us God. And he says, I have. I am God. There was a survey done a couple years ago by Lifeway's uh, research group, amongst poll amongst almost 10,000 different Americans <coughs> of all sorts of backgrounds and walks in life. 85% of them said that they believe that God exists in America. Yet 54% of them believe that only by trusting in Christ do you get eternal life. That's even a little higher than I thought it might have been. However, in this survey, the same people that said you only have salvation through Jesus Christ, 54%, 64% of the whole said God accepts all religions, Christians, Judaism, Islam, Buddhists. And 77% of Americans agreed that people must act or do something to contribute to their own salvation. So in other words, what they taught or what they think or what our culture or society believes is that, yes, there is a God, and maybe they even believe that Jesus is somehow part of this God and that you have salvation through this Jesus, but that, in essence, they teach that you can still get access to God through many other ways. The, taught, the, the, the thought of inclusivism is simply that everyone is saved on Christ's account, but they come to God in their own way. Jesus teaches that nothing could be further from the truth. No man comes to God, he says, but by me. You think about verse number one, what does he say? Believe. You believe in God, believe in me also. Look at verse number seven, he says, you've known me, you know the Father. Look back, let's look at a few verses uh, very quickly. Look back at chapter six, verse 35. <coughs> Jesus, this is not a new concept that Jesus is teaching his disciples. That he is God and that he is the only way of salvation. Look at chapter 6, look at verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Look at chapter 7, look at verse 38. 
One page over probably for you. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly or his heart shall flow rivers of living water. He says, you want life, this living water? You can only come through me. Look at chapter 11, a little closer to our text. Look at verse number 25 that we just read a moment ago. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Go over a page, chapter 12, verse number 46. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever, what? Believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If we were to go to chapter 20 and verse 31, gives us the whole purpose for the book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that what? Believing. You might have life through His name. You can go back to chapter 14. Jesus has made it clear to the disciples. He didn't just drop this on them before His death and surprise them. He's taught them now for years. I am the only way. I am the bread. I am the truth. I am the life. Living water. I am salvation. He's told them over and over again. And you only get it by trust and faith and belief in my grace toward you, my sacrifice, my death toward you. You do nothing of your own to contribute to it. No works, no certain belief, no action, no membership in any church. There is nothing that you do to gain salvation, yet humbly submit and kneel before the Son of God and say, through you and you alone I can be saved. I repent of my sin, trusting by faith in grace alone through Jesus Christ. doesn't matter what culture believes or what that survey says. Jesus teaches here in chapter 14, verse 6, only through the way, only by the truth, and only through the life, no man comes in any other way but by me. Jesus is rejecting several beliefs, past, present, and future. I want you to think about them as we begin to kind of bring these thoughts to a conclusion. I want you to think about this. Jesus is rejecting the thought of inclusivism, meaning that everyone is saved by Christ's account. Not, not that everyone believes in Christ, but that eventually everyone is saved by Christ. But he rejects that. He rules it out. He says, you must believe in Christ. You don't just get there by Christ. It doesn't say, every man comes to the Father through me. That would be a great truth. That would be very comforting. But he doesn't say that. He says, no man comes but by me. He doesn't say everyone comes because of me. One commentator says that there are anonymous Christians that are saved but don't know it because they try to access God through some other way. Nothing could be further from the truth. He rejects the idea of inclusivism. He rejects the idea of relativism, which says Jesus is salvation for you. Or Jesus is salvation for me, but he may not be salvation for everyone. He rejects that. Why? He says, no man comes but by me. No one. He said, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you think you've done. You don't get to salvation. You don't get to God. You don't have access to the Father except by me. He doesn't say, some men come to the Father by me. And some men come to the Father another way. He says, no one, no one, not one single person in this world. No one that is in church in America, across the world this morning. There's no one sitting in a church, maybe even singing or worshiping 
or maybe listening to the preaching, it does not matter. No one comes but by faith in Christ. The most rotten of people that we could imagine, it does not matter but unless they come by Christ. The most confused or to us confusing form of religion, it doesn't matter if they don't come by Christ. It is not that Jesus is salvation for you or me. Only Jesus is salvation for all. And then he rejects the thought of this, this final one, general revelation, meaning that if we simply believe that there is a God, or as Romans 1 teaches, if we believe or know that there is a God through his creation, that we won't be punished simply because of that. But Jesus doesn't teach it. He says, you only come to the Father but by me, not by generally thinking maybe there is a God. And people, get this very carefully, people are not punished simply because they didn't have the right religion. And that's why we must know it's not about proving ourselves right or someone else wrong. It is about pointing to Christ. It is not about arguing and it's not about winning. It is about pointing people to Christ. People don't die and go to hell because they never, just never trusted a Jesus that they never heard in. People are punished because they are sinners. We are punished because of our own sin. We are worthy of hell because we have rejected God. Not that we are right or wrong, but that we come through Christ. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all in sinning face the wages of sin, which is what? Death. And that in that death, there is still a gift of God that comes only through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what does this mean for our lives as we finish? What should this message that Jesus teaches only by me can you have salvation? What does that mean for Christians? I would dare say that most of us in the room this morning claim Christ through faith and repentance and we would call ourselves Christians and some may not and God may be working on your heart in that way to believe in Him. But for those of us that are Christians, what should this do in our lives? Should not make us swell with pride because we have the only way but it should motivate us because we have the only way. It should not make us feel, well, I'm so glad that I'm right and everyone else is wrong, but it should bring us to, get this from chapter 13, it should bring us to humility and love because He is the only way. Because it doesn't matter, it's not that I am right and everyone else is wrong. It's, it's not that I have the right religion and everyone else has the wrong religion. It's not that I'm, motivated to publicize that I have got it right. It should motivate me that in grace, God came for me. It should not strike me to pride. It should bring me to humility that somehow in God's good grace and in his providence, he has brought to me the message of salvation, the only way, and that I happen to know that only way. And now in humility and motivated by his love, I will tell others of the only way. Not because I have the only way, but because Jesus has shown me that there is only one way. It provides motivation. It provides courage and joy because there is no other name given that my labor is not in vain because nothing else works. Sometimes if our motivation for being a soul-winning church, if our motivation for bringing people to Christ, if our motivation for sending out missionaries like the Tigners, is that thousands and thousands, that everyone gets saved. Eventually our motivation is going to fall short and be disappointed. 
Because we can see, obviously, this morning that not everyone is. The whole city of, there are people out doing tons of other things this morning. Why? Because they do not believe. And some of them will not believe. But God has given us a mission. And the mission and the motivation for that mission is not just simply that other people get saved, though that is a result of it. But it is that we have the only way. And it doesn't matter how many times I tell someone, I don't lose motivation because they say no. I still have motivation because I know there's no other way. It's not that I'm arguing with my neighbor and eventually I get discouraged because he's chosen some other way. It's that I keep going to my neighbor because there is no other way. It is not that we keep sending missionaries and a missionary can labor on a foreign field or maybe they're in a, a tough area of the world, an unreached people group, and they labor for years. And we pour thousands of dollars into sending them around the world to see four, maybe five people saved over the course of several years. Well, what is that? It's joy because there's still only one way. And if we don't pour thousands of dollars into sending them there, if we don't go and, and commission and, and send missionaries to this world, if we don't continue to go over and over, they're not going to find it any other way. It's not that we should stop because it doesn't work. It's that we should never stop because nothing else does. It is the glory of Jesus that is at stake. Look, if you would, at verse number 12. As we finish, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, this is amazing, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. He says, If you believe in me, you're going to do what I've done in this world. Now watch the amazing part of the end of verse 12. And greater works than these shall he do. This is Jesus. This is God, the Messiah, the, the one that's going to save the entire world. He says, if you believe in me, you're going to do the things that I do. And the work that you have in this world is going to be even greater than the physical work that I had in this world. Well, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying we're going to be better at being Christians than he was? Or we're going to somehow do a better job of winning people to the lost? No, he's simply just speaking in the scope. His ministry to this point has been limited to Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that small little area of the world. He's got a group, though thousands flocked to him when he is killed here in Jerusalem. And then it tells us in Acts there's about 120 of them. And he says, but I'm going to give you power and thousands more will come. And the work that I will do through you is greater than even the work that I got to do on this earth physically. And why do we do this great work? Look at verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why do we do what we do as a church? Because Jesus Christ is the only way. It is not just some weird form of dogmatism that we have the way and everyone else is wrong you want that to you watch the news <laughs> pick your channel the world has enough of i am right and you are wrong what they don't have enough of is a desperate people who in love and humility say look it doesn't matter what you think it doesn't matter what you believe it doesn't matter what you have heard in the past unless you have trusted jesus christ and repented of your sin there is no other way and so your mission and my mission and our church's mission in this world doesn't stop. It doesn't give up. Why? Because there is no other way. 
Who in your life today do you need to continue to follow and pursue for Christ because there is no other way? Maybe there's someone that you told for a long time or you prayed for for a long time, someone at your work that you tried to slowly influence by your life and your actions for the gospel of Christ. Maybe there's someone in your mind and in your heart today that for a long time, but you've just come to the thought that they're never going to come. They've just decided something else. They believe something else. They trust in something else. And that's that. But we don't, we're not called to give up. We're not called to forsake. Why? Because there is only one way. And that person that you have witnessed to for years, that per person that you prayed for for seemingly a lifetime, you can't stop praying. You can't stop witnessing. You can't stop going. You can't stop influencing. Why? Because there's no other way. And I want to close by asking you this morning, maybe the Lord has worked in your life and you've realized this morning that there is no other way. That in the end, Jesus is all that matters. Has the gospel changed your life? And he says, come. Yesterday on my way back, we'll finish with this. Yesterday on my way back, uh, we went to West Virginia, Boston and I, just Boston and I went. We went to West Virginia to uh, see my cousin play in his senior night basketball game. And on the way back, last night we stopped at um, National Forest area and we went hiking. And uh, the little man that he is, he hiked all over the place better than I did in some ways. And uh, we're going to Eastern And on the way back to the car, I just, I'm, just, I'm trying to teach him just sense of direction, different things. And he got most of it right. So we come to a split in the path. Which way do we go? Uh, this way. Which way do we go? Uh, this way. And he got it right all the way to the very last decision. And there was one little part. I could see the car from where we were. We'd gone about three miles or so, and he was getting tired of different things. And we come to this place, and there's five splits in this path at this point. It goes five different ways. I said, well, which way? He said, I don't know. There's so many ways. And in my heart, I felt convicted because I said, nobody... There's only one way that takes us where we're supposed to go. It looks like there's a bunch, but there is only one way. And this morning, the world, society, culture may tell us there's many different ways, but there's only one. We don't give up, and we don't stop trying. Why? Because there's only one way. Let's ask the Lord to bless us this morning.